I'm Karen. And I'm Michelle. We're sisters. And homeschool moms. Welcome to the Layers of Learning podcast. Where we talk about family style homeschooling. Hello, this is Karen from Layers of Learning. And this is Michelle. And today we're going to talk about taking part in the great conversation. So the great conversation is just this body of literature, and it specifically refers to Western literature. It's ideas, great ideas from great authors of the past right up to the present day that we share. And humanity has been kind of refining philosophy, ideas, you know, the big important questions like what is honor? What is justice? And the great conversation addresses these kinds of big ideas. And a lot of times I think when we talk about this on a really get real level, we're saying you should read the classics, right, Michelle? It's like, yeah, it, it's reading the classics and not just reading them, but thinking about them. Yeah. De- delving in and changing some of your ideas because you've read something that you might not have thought of on your own. Yeah. And, and the great conversation includes science, philosophy. It can include art and music, technology, morality, all these kinds of big areas in our lives. I love the concept. I've taught my kids. Can you imagine what it would be like if we were starting from scratch? You know, you were handed electricity. You were handed even cell phones and things like that. But what if you were just going from raw materials and no knowledge and all on your own, you had to forge your life. But we instead get to build on what everyone who came before us has given to us. And that's awesome that we have this body of knowledge already here. And because we have written records of it, we get to build off of their great ideas in all aspects of life. So the central idea behind the great conversation is just what you're saying, Karen, is that we're building on this stuff from the past and not just the things that we have, but the ideas. It's really about the ideas that humanity has come up with. So Isaac Newton has a great quote that really kind of underlines this centrally he said if i have seen further it is by standing on the shoulders of giants and of course isaac newton was one of the most brilliant scientists he was a giant he was a giant (laughs) but he realized that the only reason he was able to come up with calculus was because of the people who'd come before him and laid the foundation and so when we talk about the great conversation we're talking about reading that foundation so that our minds can build upon that so that we can take advantage of that wisdom from the past and things that are people are still coming up with now. You know, what I really love about that quote. He talks about how he has seen further by standing on their shoulders. And it's so humble. And I think it's awesome to recognize that this great person was so humble because that's what learning is. It's saying, I don't know everything. Let's go and learn more about it in in this humility that I am teachable. And I love that. I, I, th- I think it's funny. We kind of joke, uh, at, you know, as our society kind of jokes around that the smartest people are kids who've just graduated high school, right at that age group. Kids are going into college. They know everything, right? <laughs> they think, <laughs> they're smart they think people. They know everything. They think they know everything. And, and then a few years down the road, they realize, oh, I don't know anything. <laughs> And that's kind of what the great conversation does to you. You think you've got a handle on, you think you know what you believe, you think that you know what's up, and then you start reading these great thoughts from great minds, and you're like, oh, I don't know anything. And that's when you begin to learn, when you realize, oh, I need to start at the bottom, I need to build little by little, and you really start thinking about what you know. And that is actually when you start to really know what you believe, when you've examined it deeply. 
So that's what the great conversation does for you. And the great conversation is underlined with the great books. And we've putting that in air quotes, the great books, because people have come up with these lists. And if you go do a Google search online, you'll find many different lists of the great books. But those lists are really subjective. Someone decided to create a list and say, these are the great books. But the next person who came along very well could have a very different list. And so it there's a lot of great literature. There's a lot of great things that have been written. And you're probably never going to read the entire body of great literature that's available out there. So the lists are a great place to start, but they're not definitive. Right, Michelle? Right. So the way that this started in the modern day is that Mortimer J. Adler in the 1950s, he was really into this idea of the great books and that our culture, our society needed to be reading these. And so he went and he got a deal with Encyclopedia Britannica and they began to sell this list of uh, 54 great books. And these were chosen by Adler. And so he's the one that chose the original great books list. And since then, other people have adjusted it, added to it, taken away whatever people feel like are the best books. So you can start with the great books of the Western world by Britannica and look at their list, but then take it with a grain of salt. You don't have to read everything on the list. And I've never read most of the things on that list. I've read some of them. And most, most people probably never read all and, of them. And you're a reader. You read constantly. Yeah, I read a lot. All the time. And you haven't read every book on on that list. But no. But that's okay. So the things that should make any great books list are things that are, the writing should be relevant today as much as it was relevant when it was written. It should still be an idea that matters now. Okay, I, that's the first thing. I love that you said that. It's the idea that matters, though, not the setting. Some people look at a book and they say, oh, that was that's outdated. And what they're talking about is the characters speak differently. The setting was really different than what modern life is. That doesn't make the ideas outdated, though. Often that's really powerful when you can look at something that happens in a completely different setting than your own and see how the ideas apply in both situations. I think that's the appeal of dystopian novels. Because when you read one, you see these big ideas set in a really different setting. I think that's also the appeal of fantasy novels. It yeah. is the big ideas put in a different setting, one that allows you to step back and analyze the ideas in a less emotional way. So that's the first thing. It needs to be re relevant to today. The second thing is that a great book should be rewarding to read more than once. If you can read a book once and put it down and never pick it up again and never, like if you did pick it up again, you'd be bored by it, then it's not really a great book. Uh, at least not for you. Um, the third thing is that it should contain ideas that have been referred, returned to and referenced and expanded on by other authors. So Plato wrote stuff and then Aristotle wrote about what Plato wrote about. And then in the Middle Ages, people were writing about what Aristotle wrote about. And today, we still have philosophers writing about Aristotle and Plato and the philosophers of the Middle Ages. These ideas have been written about over and over. They've withstood the test of time, and they're really universal themes and things that apply in a wide range. Yes. And so today, there are books that are being written that would fit in these categories, okay? But they haven't yet withstood the test of time so we wouldn't necessarily call them classics but in 50 years we may or in 100 years we may and you can absolutely read them and apply these same things that we're talking about to those more modern books also yeah, go ahead and put them on your great books list if you believe that that they 
are relevant, they're rewarding, and they contain great ideas. Yeah, that's what you're looking for in that's a book. That's what you're looking for. Okay, the next thing, the great books don't need to be read in any particular order. Some people read them chronologically according to when they were written. Other people read them by ideas. They'll read everything that was ever written about justice, for example. That's how I study things. I love to get deep into a subject. But different people are different. Some people would be bored by that. It depends on what your goals are. And yeah, I think you can read it however you want. You can just pick and choose things randomly. If you have never read the great books before and you're just beginning, start with something that appeals to you. Maybe you've heard something that was referenced on a TV show or in another book. For example, a lot of the ancient myths are really popular right now. People are rewriting them. You, you know, you get the superhero things like Thor. Well, those come from real myths, from real ideas, from real mythology. Go back and read some of that original mythology. So read the real thing. Right now in our homeschool, we're learning about the Vikings. And as we're reading this book about the Vikings, Loki was mentioned. And my kids went nuts. They were like, what? They didn't realize before that that Loki was from mythology. They just thought he was from the movies. Right. And <laughs> so it's really cool when we connect the characters and ideas. And then we were able to go to the library and actually get a book all about Loki and his original stories from those Norse myths. Yeah. And when they're older, they could go back and read a translation of the original stories that were written down in Iceland a thousand years ago. Yeah. Now in the layers of learning units, we often recommend these great books. You'll see in the library lists references to books, especially for high schoolers, but some for younger kids too. But you'll come across them and you can choose to read them that way so that it's topical in the same way that I mentioned we're studying the Vikings. And so now we're connecting the literature to that. And I think that's a really enriching way to read when you're learning about that area geographically or that historical time period. And then you put with it the classic literature that goes with what you're right. reading. So when you're learning about ancient Greece, if you pick up some plays by Sophocles, that's, that's the perfect time. You read. make so many connections. Yes. Because you understand the context of when it was written. It was written in this setting at this time among these people. And this play reveals some of the things they believed. And what does it reveal about what we still believe today? You get to make all of those cross connections between the things that you're learning. And that's really, really rewarding, I think. One of the most important things when you're choosing these great books is to be very careful about the translation that you pick. Older translations are often cheaper because they're in the public domain and they can be produced really cheaply, but they're hard to read a lot of times. First of all, if something was translated in the 1800s, it's going to be written in 1800s English, right? Mm -hmm. It's not going to be written in modern English. And often translators who are more modern will also write things. They'll, the entire ideas will be translated just a little bit differently and it'll be more accessible to people from our era. So you want to, what I do is I go onto Amazon and I find several different translations and I read all the comments and then I may search for comparison of translations of the Iliad and I will read people's comparisons and what they have said about those translations. And if I'm still not sure, I might buy two of the different translations and so I can actually get it at home and look at it and read it. And then I will hand the one that I feel is the most accessible to my children. But the awesome thing is that you've already done that for a lot of the books. And so we recommend in the library lists and layers of learning, the ones that we feel are really great translations. Yes. After we've examined several. Yes. So we'll, we'll tell you the translators that are the easiest, the most accessible for a modern student to be reading. Yeah. And there's usually a note right there. that says, choose this translation or exactly. you know, the one by this author. So 
hopefully you like the same translations that we have kind of sifted through and chosen what we find are the best ones for kids to read. Okay, so we mentioned that the great books list is the Western world, the Western ideas, but I personally add in books from other cultures, from other times, other places. My kids, for example, most of them, the older ones, have all read The Art of War by Sun Tzu. They love that. They, it's not very long. It's pretty short, and the modern translations are easy to read. They're like, The Art of War, that's so cool, because they're boys. <laughs> When you have six boys in your homeschool, you read The Art of War. You read The Art of War. So so they, they enjoy that a lot. And this this is from, you know, the Chinese culture. And it technically isn't part of the great books. But I've put it in my great books list because I feel like it is. Because I think it matches those things. Relevant to today, rewarding to read more than once, and has those great ideas that have been discussed Time yes. and time again. If you read, they actually have modern military students in, in the United States military colleges. They read the art of war. That's part of their curriculum. So it's it's very relevant to today. It matters in tactics and the way that you view the enemy and so on. It's it's an interesting book. You can also add in things like the Quran or other religious texts from other places, mythologies from around the world, not just the Western world or Europe. This is also not something that you're going to limit your kids in. You're not going to think to yourself, oh, in first grade, we must do this. In second grade, we must do this. This is just kind of an ongoing pursuit of lifelong learning that you're going to engage in. When you're teaching your kids about reading these great books, you're teaching them how to read throughout their lives. So I don't think of it quite like a checklist. I think of it like a mindset. It's not something that you're going to get done in homeschool. Your goal isn't to get your kids to read the great books during high school or to have them read great literature. You want them to read some great literature, but they're not going to finish this. This is a lifelong pursuit. We've talked before about having that growth mindset and a lifelong learning kind of mindset. And that's what we're talking about here. Hopefully when your child is 40 years old, he's still picking up great books to read. Well, and it doesn't matter if you could say, these are the 30 great books I want my kids to read. If they read them and never discussed them and never took anything away and never really thought deeply about the ideas, you wouldn't really have accomplished anything much. The idea is this concept of actually being part of this great conversation, learning how to read with the intent to think about it and add your own ideas and glean the thoughts of others. And so it's this mindset that you're going for, not a checklist. Exactly. Also... It's important the way you read the books. First of all, you should buy your own copy so that you can write in it. These are books that are important enough to own. And I always write in my books that I own. I and do too. I think libraries have ruined people <laughs> and schools because you're never allowed to write in your books, right? And we've made it seem like that's sacred somehow that books are never to be written in. I actually think it's much more sacred if my ideas are in the book, like if, if I have gotten something out of it, if I've highlighted it, if I've written in the margins, if I put a question in there, if I put a sticky note somewhere on that page, that makes it even more valuable. Do you remember in the Harry Potter series when Harry gets the cast off potions book and he doesn't know <laughs> yes. who it belongs to, but it's got all of these extra insights and instructions and ideas. And then later he finds out that it's, it wasn't from the source that he expected. <laughs> It was from his enemy. <laughs> but still, he gleaned all of this extra information 
based on that. And I remember when we were at grandma's house when we were little and she wrote in her books. Do you remember ever seeing her little notes? I don't remember that. So that's... <laughs> One of the things that our grandma did when we were little, she always let us choose a book when we were at her house. So you went to grandma's house and you could read and she had a huge library of books. And then she always said, you can take a book home with you. But I loved reading grandma's books because she often wrote notes in the margins when she read. And then she also, if there was a bad word, she always had it crossed out. (laughs) Grandma always crossed out any bad words. That's great. (laughs) But I loved reading grandma's books because it had her little handwritten notes of, of what she thought and... I I still, when I write in books, think of that. It's so valuable. And when I go back and look at one of my books, again, that I've written in before, it's interesting to me because when I read it again, I get different ideas. I'm not the same person I was when I read it the first time. I'm not at the same place in my life, and I'm I'm gleaning new stuff out of it. Well, and it's still fun to read back at the things you thought, and you still get something from that, too. And it reminds you, oh, yeah, that's where I learned that. And it has become a part of me since then, and I'd forgotten the source, maybe. But that book and that idea was in, incorporated into my psyche. And I go back and read it. And I'm like, oh, this is where it was from. I often write questions in the margins, too. Like maybe I don't know the answer, but I'm thinking about something. It made me question something. And when I go back and read it later, sometimes I find that, oh, I have an answer to that question now. Like I had thought about it without even necessarily realizing it. But I've changed since I read it last. Yeah. And, you've, and exactly. I've come to conclusions. It's interesting to do that. The next thing when you're reading these great books, it is so valuable to discuss them with at least one other person. Oh, yeah. If you can have a book discussion group, that's even better. But if you can create opportunities for yourself and for your children to have a chance to discuss these ideas with others, you'll get so much more out of it because that other person will have insights that you don't have. Because like we talked about, you're in a different place in your life. You have a different experience. You have a different mindset. The things that matter to you at that moment are different. So this past year, we read To Kill a Mockingbird out loud. And I was going to hand it to my high school age daughter and just have her read it because I felt like that's something you should read in high school. That's to me, it's a great book. Yeah, that, that book isn't on the great books list yet, but it will be, I think, very soon. Yeah, like for, it's, it's on my great books yeah, list personally. It might be on some great books list, but it, it's it's a classic. It has amazing ideas for discussion in it and things that you just wouldn't necessarily encounter in your everyday life, but you should be thinking about. So anyway, I read it out loud because I thought, you know, that's going to be more valuable if we are discussing it than if she just reads it in isolation. So sometimes I do just give my kids books to read, but we always get more out of it if we really get into the deep discussion. And I was a little bit nervous because my younger kids were listening to the read aloud too. And that book has, it's long and it does have some more grown up ideas that you encounter. And so I was a tiny bit nervous, but I was awesomely surprised at how into it they got. They all love that book now because of our discussions. Because of the discussions. I know a lot of times you feel like, oh, if we make them write a paper or if we make them memorize this or if we make them discuss it, it's going to kill the joy of it. But often the reverse happens. Yes. They end up loving it even more. Yeah. It becomes part of them, I think. Yeah. They actually have thought about it. It's no longer just a story. It becomes something that changes you. Yeah. And still in our everyday life, things come up and they'll say, that's like in To Kill a Mockingbird. (laughs) They notice things so much. And that's what the great books do. They create connections to your real life, your real experiences. Yeah. We were watching actually the news and they were talking about bullying that was happening 
we've had a a local school where there's been a huge bullying problem and some threats that have been made at, at the public school. And so the kids saw this on our local news and they related that back to how we had spoken about kindness and how you choose to treat people from reading To Kill a Mockingbird. And they actually were the ones who brought it up when they saw the news and made that connection. And it was really cool for me to go, yay, they, they're thinking about these big ideas in ways that they never would have if we hadn't read that book. They might have said, oh, people should be nice. But they thought about it in a different light because of our many discussions. And that's one of the things I love about novels. People sometimes get a little down on novels. They're not worth as much as nonfiction or or something like that. But I actually think that they can be really impactful because human beings learn through stories. We're wired to learn through stories. And when a story has real themes that matter, that's when it comes into our hearts and we can really relate ourselves back to it. We can, we can put ourselves, you become scout while you're reading to kill a mockingbird. Right. So you also keep a, an actual journal of about what you read, right? Besides writing in your books. I keep a, a notebook and whenever I come across any book that I have ideas from it that I want to remember, not necessarily great books. I mean, it could be a diet book. It could be anything, but any book that I come across that I want to keep ideas from, I write the title at the top of a page and I just start taking notes. And this is just for me. Sometimes I never go back and look at it. Other times I do, but I find that the act of writing it down helps me think about it better. That's one of my learning styles. I think we share that in common. When we write, that's actually a projection of our thoughts. It helps us sort out our thoughts. Yes. Until I've written it, I haven't thought it really. And you have to recognize not all kids are that way, but a lot of kids actually are that way. Even for kids who struggle to write, they can learn to think about things as they're writing. Even if they only write a few words, the thought processes that happen during writing can be really powerful. So it might not work for every kid. There are kids who really, really have struggles with writing in unique ways. At the very least, marking things directly in the book. But if, if you have a child who enjoys writing, for sure, introduce them to the idea of having a book journal and they can just keep what they want in there. My book journal is totally private. Nobody reads it. I'm never going to publish it. I'll probably burn it before I die. (laughs) (laughs) It's for you. Exactly. But I do think even kids who don't love to write, I would recommend they keep a reading log of what they've read. It's almost like this is the body of knowledge that I've acquired. And I wish yeah. I had a reading log of every Everything book that I had ever read, read in my life. I wish so much I that I could go back and look at, you know, the list of every book. I wonder how many it would be. A lot. It, we should just start now. We should. I'm still bad at that. But wouldn't but, it be cool to have it, yeah, that? Yeah, that's I, cool. That's a great idea. Another thing, especially once your children get into high school, they need to learn how to write about books in a little more formal way. So essays, research papers, things along that line. Sometimes you have to force those thought processes to happen by having them organize their thoughts. They have the ideas, but when we organize it, we think more deeply about it. So forming a thesis statement, organizing arguments about things or, you know, your point of view into paragraphs and complete ideas that can really help high school kids to both think more deeply and articulate those thoughts. Yeah. And, and it's a good idea to give them a fair amount of leeway in the exact topic they choose. We're reading poetics by Aristotle and you're going to write something about poetics. 
about, you know, he writes about what is what is beautiful, what makes something artsy. <laughs> a lot of those topics that he wrote about were almost like the things that you could put a capital letter on, like what is truth with a capital T, like absolute truth, or what is beauty universally, things right. like that. And so it causes them to examine those ideas. And and your, the, your child should be allowed to choose, you know, which direction they're going to take that essay, because it should be their ideas, not not you telling them this is what you have to write about. Right. And often I think that you can help them narrow that down through the discussion. You have the discussion out loud. And when they hit on something interesting, you say, that would be awesome for you to write about. I love that that. down. So you've got notes. Yeah. And then they get to start formulating their ideas from from what they read and from their own mind and experience. So let's walk through a little bit how you actually incorporate the great conversation and the great books into your homeschool, you know, in real life. How does this how does this really work? What does it look like? Yeah. So you start off, your children are little, okay? They're not reading Aristotle. <laughs> Hopefully you're not doing that. <laughs> so what do you do with them when they're little, Karen? I read fairy tales. <laughs> well, not just fairy tales, but I think that kids have to have something to base their ideas on. And that's the part of homeschool where you're just gathering a lot of facts. They're learning about all the interesting things that you can help them learn about. So... It can be everything from learning about animals and science and countries in the world and cultures and famous people. You're basically giving them this base that they're going to build all of their ideas on. But if they don't know anything about the world, they don't have a base. They don't have any foundation for anything else. No. How can you talk about truth or justice or war or... Or love if you don't know what's happened in history, if you don't have a context of how human beings have treated each other through all these years, if you don't have an understanding that different cultures view these things differently, it's going to be really hard to make those connections, to have these kinds of discussions. So you need to have this, just fill them up with facts, just books and books and books and read and read and read. Yeah, help them just be interested and learning continually about all of the interesting things that make up our world. It's And it should be endless. done in a way that helps them realize this is fun, this is interesting, not you're going to memorize this for the quiz. Right, right. It's we're going to find out about this. What more do you want to find out? And, it's, it's that exploring that we always talk and, about. Well, and the great thing is that layers of learning is written that way, intentionally. We did that on purpose. We, we decided... When children are young, and all the way through really, but especially when they're young, they're just going to be filled up with facts. They're just going to be doing these hands-on projects. They're going to be reading all these books, and they're just going to learn about the world. And it doesn't matter exactly which facts. It doesn't matter if you spend more time on the Egyptians than you spend on the Greeks. It doesn't matter exactly which books you pick. It's just about that process of filling you up with this love of learning and this knowledge of the world that we live in. Mm -hmm. And then after you have those facts that create the context for those great ideas, then you're going to start getting into actually reading books that discuss those ideas. So I mentioned fairy tales. I think when kids are little, fairy tales are the great literature. They are. I I agree. They're, They're ancient. They're old. They've withstood the test of time. They really do talk about the values that are most important to the culture that they were written in. And they're relevant to today. And that's why Disney still uses them to make their movies, because they're still relevant. They're still great stories. They still mean we're something to s- us. We're still talking about them and their ideas. And so, yeah, they, they meet they the meet demands the of, classic. of classic literature. Yeah. And when once kids are in the middle grades, your classic literature pool explodes. 
And we're, we're talking here about classics that are written for children, things that appeal to children already. And so these are going to be from the 1800s and on. Before that, there wasn't really literature written for children, apart from fairy tales, maybe. Partly because children weren't as literate, and, and there was just no... They didn't have the ability to print books and distribute them to kids, so that they just didn't have writing for kids. Right. So so it's going to be a little bit more modern things, but some of them could be a little difficult because they were written 200 years ago. So some of the language some and of the language cultural and context has changed. Yeah. So some of those, and some examples would be things like Tom Sawyer by Mark Twain. That's a classic. The Secret Garden. Wind in the Willows. Think Peter Pan. And then what about for high school, Michelle? What kinds of books do you recommend for high schoolers? Well, when your kids are in high school, this is when you actually start hitting that great books list. And you can stick with the things that are already in the layers of learning lists, or you can branch out into some other things. You know, you can choose what you'd like to read. But they should be reading one or two of the great books per year. If you have a really prolific reader, somebody who's really into it, they can do more than that. But, you know, if you hit one or two per year, that's enough. Because what you're doing is you're introducing them to these books. You're helping them realize, oh, I can actually read this hard stuff. And it's going to make them feel like, they, well, they won't be intimidated by it. And I think it's important to remember, if I gave my kids only this classic literature, they would probably reject it. Even though it's great. Yeah. They want to read mindless books sometimes. <laughs> so yeah, do I. Sometimes do. I love to just sit down and Read a novel that I'm not really thinking deeply about at all. Or, or things that aren't necessarily great books, but are still fun. Yeah. Okay. There's, there's this great series. It is the weirdest thing I've ever read, but somehow you love it anyway. Okay. It's called The Ministry of Suits. And if you haven't read it, you I, should. I haven't. Now it I'm going to. so weird. Okay. But the author has this way of looking at the world that you're like, oh my gosh, I'll give you one example. Okay. If you see one shoe in the road, that means that there's a pirate who's gotten loose somewhere. <laughs> and the author has this whole train of reasoning of why this is true, okay? And the whole book is like that. He takes these odd little occurrences that you never think about in your real life, and he explains why aliens are there, or why <laughs> the men in black are going to come get you, or I, I don't know, this all this stuff. It is the most fascinating book ever. It so, sounds funny. It is funny. So we're not saying you can't read stuff like that, because you still should, but just choose one or two per year. When my kids are in their freshman year, we often do the Iliad if we're doing ancient history. So when we're doing ancient history, we'll do the Iliad. That is the foundation. That's like the first one that you're going to hit often, because it's the foundation of Western literature. That's the myth that everything else builds on. When Aristotle was writing, the Iliad was part of his psyche. That's where he was coming from. Okay, so, mm -hmm. and the way I like to do it is that when my children are younger, they'll read Black Ships Before Troy by Rosemary Sutcliffe. So it's a retelling of the Iliad. They're they becoming familiar with it. They already know the story. So when they get to the much more challenging Iliad, which is chock full of these names that are unpronounceable, right? They will yeah. they will be able to wade through the, the tough bits and they'll still get the story. And even if some of the vocabulary is more difficult, they have the overarching concept so they can sift through the vocabulary and understand still and, and build their vocabulary. Well, and something that, that you and your children should understand is that when you're reading the great books, if you're not getting it, just keep reading. It's okay if you don't get it all. A few paragraphs or a few pages later, you'll have an epiphany moment and you'll start to understand, oh, that's what was going on. Or, oh, I'm back on track now. 
It's okay if you don't get it all. It's not really very different than a kid who's just learning to read and they're sounding out each letter and they might not even understand when they sound out the word. You know how it takes them long enough that you go, yeah, he didn't understand yeah, the beginning of the sentence is lost because it took so long to get through it. Right. Yeah. But the only way to come to understanding is to keep going. You have to keep practicing that and you get better. It's the same for adults or high schoolers or anyone who's reading this literature. You have to trudge through it and you're going to struggle sometimes. And then you'll go, oh, now I get it. You actually get better at it. Even as adults, we don't just get things. We have to trudge through it sometimes to get to the other side. Exactly. So you might be having your children read a play by Sophocles or the Bible or Adam Smith's Wealth of, Wealth of Nations, the American Declaration of Independence, Huckleberry Finn. Those are the kinds of titles that are on great books lists and have a discussion with them about it. Now, as the homeschool mom or teacher, you might feel like you need to direct the discussion. That's not really exactly how it works. You're going to get started. But then you're part of the discussion. You're you're one of the learners. You don't know the answers to all these questions. You don't you're not the expert on the great thoughts of the world. You're a learner just like your student is. I think it totally changed my homeschool when I started really totally embracing that idea that I wasn't the one giving the answers. We all get to ask questions and we all get to give answers. And my kids love it when they find out my opinion on something, especially when their opinion's different and we kind of have a little back and forth. Yeah, we go back and forth and discuss things. And it's really fun for all of us and rewarding for all of us. And I never shut them down and say, nope, I'm right, you're wrong. That's not how this works. We get to all have our ideas. And the bottom line is, if you look at the world, look at the diversity of ideas out there. Clearly, it's not that half of the people are smart and half of the people are dumb, even though if you look on social media, it <laughs> it might feel like that. It might feel that way. <laughs> but, but truthfully, everybody has these valid ideas. And the truth is not just clear about all of these big ideas. We all have something to contribute. And if we learn to listen to each other through the discussions, even if it means I'm listening to my 15-year-old, I might think I know more, but they might have a good idea in there. They, I'm sure they do they, have a good idea. They have a different experience than you've had. It doesn't matter that they're your child and were raised in your household. They still have a different experience of the world than you have. And so they're going to have ideas that are different and valid. So when you're doing these discussions, you do have to get them kicked off. You have to get this started. You're going to be the facilitator. And basically, you're going to do Socratic questioning. And Socratic questioning at its essence means that you don't know the answers. Socrates would see somebody in the marketplace and he would just walk up to them and say, hey, what do you know about justice? I mean, just randomly, right? <laughs> and they'd be like, huh, what? <laughs> and he would just have these discussions with them. He never told them about justice. He wasn't a lecturer. He didn't teach people. He would just ask questions and they were very open-ended questions. So that's what Socratic questioning is. You're going to get to the why questions. Why do you believe that? So there's an easy way to do this kind of in a, in a pattern and we'll help you with that so that you can do it for whatever book you're reading. So let's take some examples. When your kids are little, you might read The Little Match Girl. So you're going to read The Little Match Girl and you're going to start with a really surface question because that's kind of a conversation starter. So you might start and say, how did this story make you feel? Oh, it made me feel so sad. Let them talk about that a little bit. And you're going to tell your kids also how it made you feel. 
And, and and you might need to draw them out. If they just say sad, you can say, why? What made you sad about it? Well, and that's where you're going to get into the deeper questions. They're going to start examining the whys. And so you start with a surface question and then you let the conversation progress into a deeper conversation of why. Exactly. And it's I think it's pretty easy to take a question like, how did this story make you feel? And turn it into the deeper questions. So that's a great beginning question for any story. How did this story make you feel? Okay. Or what character did you relate to the most? Or what was your favorite part of the story? Those are right. great beginning questions. Because they're simple. Anyone can answer them. It doesn't take a great deal of thought to figure out the answers to those. And yet they're going to be different for every person. There's not a right answer. There's not a right answer. Okay. And so then, yeah, like Karen said, you go into the deeper ones and you always start with, well, why? Why was that your favorite character? What about that made it your favorite part? Why was that? Why did it make you feel sad? Or why did it, why were you excited? Or whatever the emotion is. The deeper is when you are examining the whys behind your surface questions. Exactly. And then the third stage is to relate it back to your real life. So we're back on the little match girl. It made me feel sad. It made me feel sad because the little girl suffered and there were all these people around who could have helped her and they didn't. Maybe because they didn't know or maybe because they didn't care. We're not sure in the story. So when you relate that back, now you're going to ask about a situation that they have seen. Have you ever seen someone who's suffering? And they might say, well, no, or they might say, well, remember that and you'll have a situation in your real life. Or maybe it was something you saw on TV. You could examine how much you have and how not everyone in the world has the same things that you have or, you know, something and, and along those is, veins. This is where that context comes from, from all the different facts you've been learning about all different areas of the world, science, geography, history, all those things are going to come into play because your children will now have a bank of ideas and facts that they can pull from to relate it back to the real world that they live in now, today, to their lives. So in whatever level your kids are reading at, you start with that surface question, steer the conversation to the deeper questions, and then relate it back to you somehow, to your life and your experiences and your knowledge. Yeah, so I think the little match girl humanizes poverty. Often we can see poor people or poor countries and we can just put them in the category of statistics. Just statistics. They're not real people. But the, the little match girl humanizes that. It makes it real. And that's the kind of thing that you want to bring out for your children. And again, you're not telling them what to believe. You want them to arrive at these kinds of ideas on their own. And you'll be surprised. They'll have ideas you never thought of. Well, and there's not one answer for how to solve poverty. But it's a really important thing for us to talk about. And you're letting them get in on that discussion about a really, really important subject on their level, not I mean, in a yeah, super scary level. That's, not. that's a really a deep, deep topic. And the little match girl is a depressing, sad story. But it's also something that they can relate to. That's one of the things that I think I really appreciate about great literature, no matter what level you're reading on. That's the same thing for fairy tales as, as much as Socrates, you know. It changes you. After you've had these discussions, this literature changes how you think about your actions and your life and your choices and what you do. And that's what makes it great is that it makes us really think. It makes us more complete people. Mm -hmm. And that's what you want for your children to not only begin that journey while they're in your homeschool, but hopefully to continue it. Okay. So another book for middle grades that is, has really deep themes and is impactful. The Giver. 
Don't you think, Karen? Yes, yes. I love The Giver. And you can go so many directions with a lot of the great books. In fact, we've read The Giver, and I asked my kids about the concept of a black and white world, like what it would be like to live in a black and white world without color. And we got into huge discussions about that that I didn't even anticipate. That was just while we were driving in the car. That wasn't even a homeschool lesson. Yeah, well, I know a lot of these discussions don't have to be formal. They don't have to be around the kitchen table. They can they can be at dinner. They can be while you're driving in the car, while you're taking a walk. Yeah. They can be spontaneous. And the great books have so many different directions that you can go. You start with those surface questions. What's a surface question that you might ask for the giver? I would probably ask, what was your favorite part of the story? Because that... Like if, if their favorite part is when the boy is figuring out that his world isn't what he thought it was. I mean, that's going to be a different discussion than the part if you decide to talk about the part where he's running for his life from mm-hmm. the society. You know, it's, it's going to lead to different discussions. And so if you find out what your children were drawn to, that'll lead to the things that they're ready to talk about and the ideas that they have. And you can ask them, well, why was that your favorite part? And then you yep, go deeper. That's, that's the deeper part. And then inevitably you're going to relate it back to you. What do you think is different about our world than you thought before? What have you learned about our world that you didn't expect? Or, you know, or do you think any things like this happen today? I mean, obviously the giver is dystopian. Yes. But there, the reason that dystopian books appeal to us is because we see elements of them in our real lives. There are things that the government or the corporation or whatever is doing that we don't necessarily agree with or like, but we may not realize it's even there until we've read The Giver. Mm -hmm. And so maybe that will help your children pull that out. And doing those things when they're little with the little match girl and then when they're in middle grades with The Giver enables them to tackle the tougher stuff when they're older. And you get to have these same conversations again and you start with those surface level questions. You, you say, what was your favorite part? Again, you know, the same thing. Or who was your favorite character? If I was if I was reading Pride and Prejudice with my children, I would probably start with who was your favorite character because that's a character-driven novel. It's about the, the people. The characters are very, they're the interesting part of that story. Yeah. And so one of my favorite characters is Mr. Bennett. He's hilarious. He's also kind of a jerk, though. I mean, you, you got to think about all of the different aspects of his character, and you could go into, well, why do you like him? Is there anything about him that you don't like? And you know, you can you can really delve into what is it that make these makes these people tick, and why did you like them? Why didn't you like them? And then you get to relate it back to you. Do you notice anything in yourself that's like him? Yeah, exactly. Or do you know anyone like him? Or do you want to be like him? (laughs) I'd like to hone my snarkiness just a little. (laughs) You don't aspire to be exactly like Mr. Bennett? (laughs) Maybe not quite exactly. I'm better with money than he is. (laughs) But they really do cause you to examine more deeply all of your beliefs and ideas and you start to understand why you believe the things that you do when you ask yourself these whys, these questions. You know what is another great starter question, especially for teens, I think, is which character did you not like? Who did you dislike the most? Because they can be really passionate about that. I I think all of us can be really passionate about that. Who do we not like at all? Those things that make us cringe, the people that are extra hard for us, and we can recognize the traits that we don't meld with well. Yeah. Yeah. I highly recommend that if you're picking a difficult book, you grab Spark Notes or go to Cliff Notes, something that's a guide that helps you get through the book and will help you understand some of the themes that are behind it. Have your children read the Spark Notes 
and you read them too, it helps you understand the characters and the themes on difficult things. Spark notes are not cheating. No. It I love spark notes. They're also a great place to go for essay direction. Like if you're not sure what you should write about, they have questions in there. They have lots of ideas and you can choose from some of the ideas. I also highly recommend How to Read a Book. So there's a book called How to Read a Book, okay? And it's by Mortimer J. Adler. That's the guy we were talking about at the beginning who came up with this great books movement in the 20th century. And give this to your teens to read when they're around 9th or 10th grade. And it's it helps you to learn to read deeply. It takes you through the stages of reading, skimming, reading through the story, and then examining it, getting in deeper. It talks about writing in your books and taking notes about books. And then also A Well-Educated Mind by Susan Wise Bauer. That's, she has a lot of really great ideas in the classical realm That's of an homeschooling. Book. That, that book is geared toward adults. And so if you read this as an adult, it helps you to understand how to have that classical education you missed out on. And that's what Layers of Learning is doing too. We're, we're giving kids a classical education, but we've done it in a way that's more fun and appealing than a typical, what you think of as a classical education. We, we take it a little bit beyond just the reading, writing portion of classical. Yeah. And get yeah. into more of the hands-on But projects. Susan Weisbauer will help you understand, you know, what does that mean? How do you get around the great books? Why is it important? And I How think when I read it? her books, it helped me to understand the value of it more deeply yeah, also. Yeah. I, when I read what she wrote, I craved reading these books that before I don't think I cared to read. I thought that's boring. Yeah. So and all of a sudden I wanted to read it. Yeah. So Well-Educated Mind. We recommend that one a lot. We also really recommend Writer's Workshop for helping your kids to write about books Very soon there will be a Writer's Workshop unit released that's called Reports and Essays. And a section of that is teaching your kids how to write about books that they read. And so it's taking some of these ideas that we've talked about today and they're going to put them into writing. So those surface level questions deeper and then relating it back to themselves, they'll be doing that in a written form in Reports and Essays. And then we also have another Writer's Workshop unit that will be coming out called the Research Paper. And that is dedicated for high school students who are independently writing a research paper. It's a little bit different than the other writer's workshop units that are family style. And this is a higher level look at how to research many things and then put their own ideas into it. In the same way that we're talking about with, you know, joining this great conversation, they're going to read the books and then join that conversation by writing about what they've read and those thoughts. Yep. So that's the great books. Look for things that are relevant. Learn to have discussions with your children. This can take time to learn how to have those discussions. It's okay to practice with that. I think it's also okay to read a book with your kids that you haven't read before. Sometimes you feel like you have to pre-read and prepare and write questions. If you just start reading and engaging with your kids, it'll flow naturally. Yeah, and I I feel like this works really well as a read aloud for a lot of books. I do it depends too. on the book. But like The Giver, that should be read aloud as a whole family together. And then you're having the discussion. You're all in the same place. You're all ready to talk about it together. It's It makes a great And it can experience. encompass a lot wider range of kids than you think if you're doing it all together and yeah. discussing all together. If you've got a 14-year-old and a 12-year-old and a 6-year-old and a 4-year-old, they can all be listening. Your 4-year-old may wander out of the room, but they can all be listening and they'll all be able to participate on some level. Mm-hmm. That's what makes these great books great. They apply to all of us. They do. So you're going to start with the surface, go deep, and then relate it back to your life. That's what the great books do for you. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye.
Thank you for joining us today. Come and visit us at layersoflearning.com and on our Facebook group. Make sure to tune in next month for our new podcast. In the meantime, we wish you happiness in your homeschool. Have Have fun fun learning. learning!